opportunity for us to be here uh, just to remember the cross and what Jesus did for us. Uh, If you have a Bible, if you would, turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and Joey will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. My message this afternoon is no greater love. Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to just open up our hearts to remember the cross and what our Savior Jesus Christ has done for us upon the cross and to look at it specifically and to understand the scope of it, Lord, though we'll never really this side of heaven But at least this afternoon we'll get a glimpse of the love and the grace that you poured out upon us and what you did for us. And so we thank you for this time, Lord. We pray if there's anyone here that doesn't have a personal relationship with you, your son Jesus Christ, we pray that uh, they would see their need for you, that they would turn to him this morning. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to worship you. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's a movie that came out many, many years ago, and I think probably most of you have seen that, called Princess Bride. And, you know, it's one of the best movies ever made, not because it's got some great theological content in there. It's just a funny movie. And there's a scene, you guys may be knowing where I'm going, that some of you know if you've seen the movie. How many of you ever have seen the movie, Princess Bride? Just about everybody. Mike, you've you got to watch it. You haven't seen it. So. Um, but there's a scene in that where Prince Humperdinck and Princess Buttercup are going to be married. And they come before this preacher, and this clergy who has this robe on, he has this like really tall hat on, and he has like a, a unibrow for an eyebrow, and, and, and you think this guy's going to have this really deep-sounding voice. And he gets up and he says, Marriage, the blessed arrangement, you know, marriage is what brings us together today. Then he, then he, he kind of drones on and he says, Love, true love, We'll follow you wherever you go. Well, it's funny, but that's exactly what I want to talk about this afternoon, this Good Friday. Love, true love, that follows us wherever we go. That's truly, truly what brings us together today. It's found in Jesus Christ. It's found in what Jesus said in John fifteen thirteen: Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Greater love, no one has, has but to lay down his life for ours. That is the true love that we look at, excuse me, <coughs> look at this morning. We're gathered here this afternoon to remember the true love of Christ displayed upon the cross. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It's Good Friday because we celebrate what Jesus did on it that Friday some 2,000 years ago as he showered his love to us in a way that, that no one ever could. We know the story. We've read it many times. Judas Iscariot decided to betray his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And the, the Bible tells us that Satan entered his heart. But in re- reality, the, the, the other forces were in play on that day. Forces more powerful than the religious rulers more powerful than the Roman government uh, or Judas Iscariot or anyone else. For all practical purposes, God himself was bringing about the events of the crucifixion. 
And something that kind of boggles our mind is how uh, the forces of Satan were moving towards the same objective. In a rare moment in human history, the forces of God and of Satan were going the same direction but with different objectives. Satan, blinded by what Christ came to do, thought by killing him he would eliminate him as a threat, not realizing he was playing right into the hand of God. Because long before there was a Jerusalem, or Israel, or a garden called Eden, or for that matter, a planet called Earth, a decision was made in eternity past that Jesus Christ would come to this earth and die. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20 tells us that it was the, the, the precious, with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world that was manifested in these last times for you. Foreordained before the foundation of the world, Jesus Christ would come into this world, onto this earth, to die for our sins. In other words, that decision has already been made. And that's why Jesus spoke of it so often as he, as he walked this earth. He told his, his disciples in great detail what awaited for him. How he was going to suffer. How he was going to die. How he was going to be betrayed. How he was going to be crucified. And how he would rise from the dead on the third day. We know he was delivered to Pontius Pilate, this Roman governor. And, and, the, and he was not happy about it. He really, you know, did not want to deal with something as, as controversial as the crucifixion of Jesus. So he had Jesus scourged, hoping that would appease the bloodthirsty crowd, hoping that it would, he would get off the hook. But the truth is, Pilate was a coward. He could have at any time stopped it and said, no, no further, but he didn't. And so he's just as responsible for Jesus' death. Now we've talked about this before, but to help us to fully grasp this, the love that God has for us, and, and this Good Friday and what Jesus went through for us, I want us to remind us just how barbaric and painful the scourging in the cross was. Back in those days, the Romans used something known as a, the cat of nine tails, and, and it was a whip with a leather whip with numerous strands, and it had tied to it or, or within that embedded pieces of lead and glass, sharp pieces of lead and glass. And every time those strands would come down upon the person's back, they would literally rip into the skin and go deeper and deeper until it finally hit the skeletal tissues. Many people would not even survive the scourging. So Pilate had scourged Jesus 39 times, 39 blows on his back. But it didn't stop there. The Roman soldiers decided to have some fun at Jesus' expense. Look now in your Bibles at Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. See, the Roman soldiers, knowing that Jesus was going to die anyway, were free to mutilate, beat, or do anything against him that they wanted to do. In fact, at that day, they would play a, a, a cruel Roman game known as Hot Hand with the prisoners. All the soldiers would show, uh, all the soldiers would show the prisoner their fist. They would then blindfold the prisoner, and all but one would hit him as hard as they could. And then they would remove the blindfold of the prisoner. Uh, and, if, and if the prisoner was still conscious, they would tell him to guess which one did not hit him. Cruel. 
And they would continue this until they'd beaten the prisoner to a pulp. I believe that Jesus was so mutilated that you would not even have recognized him. His face would look like a prize fighter that had gone 15 rounds. Bloody, swollen, black and blue. In fact, Isaiah prophesied of this in Isaiah 52, 14. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Well, verse 31 goes on. Look at verse 31. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. So at this point, Jesus is bloodied, beaten, bruised, very weak, and now they place a cross upon his back. Let's read now from verse 32 to verse 50. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, Save yourself, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others and himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard, it, heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took the sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if, see if Elijah would come down to save him. Verse 50, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. Death by crucifixion was one of the most disgraceful and cruel ways to be executed. It's usually reserved uh, for slaves or foreign revolutionaries or criminals of the worst kind. The Romans used it often. According to historical records, the Romans crucified some 30,000 people. We know the feet of one being crucified would be crossed over and a spike would be driven through them and the spike would be driven through the hands. We know that actually when a person died upon the cross, it wasn't because, because of the blows of the spikes themselves. It was usually death by suffocation because the crucified person was unable to catch their breath. And the only way they could get air in their lungs was to push on that little step that was there upon the cross with their, their feet pinned to that, push up on that in order to get air into their lungs and then sink back down again. So we can imagine the pain and the anguish just to get a breath as Jesus pressed that his back against the cross, going up with, with the spike through his feet, uh, you know, just trying to get that breath, the, the, the spikes in his hands, trying to catch his breath. Add to that the congestion of the blood in the head and in the lungs and in the heart, swelling virtually every, every vein in his body. And so crucifixion, uh, by, you know, death by crucifixion, one of the cruelest deaths 
a person can go through. And as Jesus pulls himself on that cross, in that pain, in that horror that is unimaginable, he utters his first of seven statements from the cross. And you know what this first statement was? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His very first thought was praying for his enemies. Now later on he said, I thirst. Now if that was his first statement, I mean, I would have understood that. But to hear him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. His very first thoughts were not for himself. Nor were, even for, nor were they even for his mother who was there at the foot of the cross or his own disciples. Now a little bit later he'd say, woman, behold your son and son, behold your woman, referring to John, you know, who Jesus loved, who was to take care of his mother now that he was going to die and go to heaven. But his very first thoughts as he's hanging on the cross were for the very individuals who had driven the spikes through his hands, who'd whipped his back, who had mocked him, who had beat him. This was such a dramatic statement that it caused the immediate conversion of one of the thieves. We don't read, read it here in Matthew's Gospel. We read that they both were, were mocking Jesus. But, but you, know, you know, they read, he saved others, let him save himself if you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now it amazes me that, that two people being crucified next to Jesus would have the state of mind to say something like that. But they're so filled with hate and rage themselves and anger that they're just repeating what the crowd was saying around them. But when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, one of those, those things instantaneously came to his senses and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That instant, Lord, remember me. Instant salvation. Well, after a time, according to verse 45, we read there was a mysterious darkness that fell on the earth that lasted for three hours, from 12 o'clock noon until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's why we hold Good Friday at noon. To give us a, give us a sense of the same time of day that, that Jesus died. Could you imagine as we're gathered together right now, if we suddenly, outside these windows that are open, it just turned pitch black. Midnight. I mean, that's what was going on at that point. I mean, it would be pretty scary. You would think something was up. Well, something was up. It was dark when Jesus died so that those who trusted Him wouldn't have to live in darkness. They wouldn't have to live in the bondage of death, a death sentence of sin, but to live in the light of Jesus Christ. And it was then, during those three hours of darkness and silence, suddenly the silence is broken by the cry of our Lord in verse 46, when He says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, I believe, was that moment that, that led to God's most painful moment as the darkness is pierced by the voice of Christ when He gives a fourth statement of the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why would Jesus say such a thing? Well, for starters, it's fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1, that said exactly the same thing, that the Messiah would say that. Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I think it's, it's, it's extremely difficult for us as human beings to even fathom what was taking place here. Listen, we're on holy ground when we look into a subject like this. Because I believe, and it is believed by many, that this was at the time that Jesus was bearing all the sin of the entire world upon his shoulders. We know it happened somewhere along in the crucifixions. It seemed like it would be at this moment. And by the way, these weren't the delusions of a man in pain. His faith was not failing him. 
These were the words of a man who literally was forsaken by God for a time. He was merely stating the truth of the situation that he was in. But I want you to note here that this is not the way God normally deals with his own when they face life's hardest moments. In fact, when Christians go through crises, it is then that God reveals himself in a special way. And he works in our lives and he moves in our hearts, especially when we're going through great times of tragedy and hardships. But in this particular situation, Jesus said it because it was an accurate assessment of what was actually transpiring. A great, great gulf was, was separating him from the holiness of God. See, Jesus had no sin of his own. The Bible says that the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I don't think we can, can really begin to fathom what was going through, it, happening at this time. All of our worst fears about the horrors of hell and more were realized by him as he received upon himself the penalties of others' wrongdoings. All the penalty for our sins, which the Bible says is death. See, Jesus was forsaken by God even for a short time. It was a fate worse than death, thus God's most painful moment. Why? Well, Jesus was God. Never had a single uh, thought of out, of out of harmony with the Father, much less ever committed a sin. This is a man who lived in perfect harmony with the Father at all times. And now he's not only having to face the sin of one person or two people or, or five people, but the sins of the entire world, past, present, and future. It's a lot of sin. And he's bearing it all. And what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to notice that Jesus does not address God as Father. He didn't say, my Father, why have you forsaken me? But my God. And again, the reason is because the Son had taken upon himself the sin of the world. So the Father had to turn his back on him. Habakkuk 1 verse 13 says of God, You are of pure eyes that to behold evil you cannot look on wickedness. God had to turn his eyes away from his son. The Bible says the punishment of our peace was upon him. And I believe this is the moment that 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be us, for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah reminds us in verse 10 that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Why did this happen? Why did our Lord have to go through something as awful as this? Let me give you four reasons. And then we'll enter into a time of communion. Number one, he went through it to show his love for us. All comes back down to God's love for you and for me. Listen, if you're ever tempted to doubt the love of God, just take a long look at the cross at Calvary and remember Jesus did that for you. He did it for me. Again, John 3.16, For God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son. Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. And of course, Paul in Galatians 6.20, He loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus was, was forsaken by God so I don't have to be. Jesus was forsaken of God for the time that I might enjoy His presence forever. Jesus was forsaken by God so that I might be forgiven. Jesus entered the darkness so I can walk in the light. Number two, the reason Jesus went through this was to absorb the wrath of God. To absorb the wrath of God. 
If God were not just, there would be no demand for the Son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for the, for the Son to suffer and die. But because both God is loving and just, that means Jesus met the demands of justice as His Son wanted to bear the brunt of all sin. We know God says in His Word in Ezekiel 18.20, The soul that sins shall surely die. Someone had to pay the price. Jesus did it all for us. Again, he paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. Number three, Jesus went through the cross in order to cancel the legal demands against us. You know, I think there's a lot of people in this world that are living their lives thinking that, that, that you know, that, that God grades on a curve, you know. In other words, if I live a good life and try and be good to people and good person, I'm going to get to heaven. And if I don't do so good, then I'm going to have to go to, go to hell. Listen. It's simply not true. The bottom line is we've all broken God's commandments. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no salvation by balancing records. The only salvation there is by, by canceling records because there were some serious charges against you and because of our sin. The wages of sin, the penalty for that sin is death. Jesus made those final words. It is finished upon the cross. That means he canceled that debt. And that brings us to the last reason Jesus suffered and died for us, to provide our forgiveness and justification. This means that no matter what you've done, if you've turned from that sin and acknowledged it and asked God for His forgiveness, you have been forgiven. Not only that, you've been justified. Let me illustrate what that means. Let's say somehow you got carried away with your, your credit cards. Started getting some credit cards and you ran up a debt. And it started getting higher and higher and higher. And pretty soon you had $10 million worth of debt. Okay, you never get that line of credit. But let's just, for the sake of my illustration, you got $10 million worth of debt. Obviously, there's no way you could pay that debt. You're arrested, you're going to prison, and then you, you, you know, your story runs in the newspaper and some very wealthy man hears of your situation, decides that he wants to do something about it. He goes and he pays all of your debt. Every last penny. I mean, he came and got the money out, took care of all your responsibilities, and now you're debt-free. You owe $10 million, now you owe absolutely nothing. So you want to meet this person. So you meet this guy, and you sit down with them, and you're at a restaurant, and you tell them just how thankful you are that, that you, you, know, you took care of me, and that this debt is gone. It's just so amazing that you would do that for me. But then he says, you know, I'm happy to do that for you. In fact, I understand how difficult your situation was. And by the way, on your, home to, on your way home tonight, why don't you stop at the ATM and check your balance in your account? I know what my balance is. It's zilch. Zero. Nada. Nothing. Well, why don't you check it again, he says. So you head home and you stop by an ATM and you check, slide your card in, you punch your PIN number in and, and hit the button that says check balance and you're amazed to see that it has $20 million sitting in your checking account. That's justification. Not only is this just you've never had that debt to begin with, just as you've never sinned, but God has granted you so much more. Joy, peace, friendship with God. You see, forgiveness is having the debt that you owe canceled. Justification is having something put in your account in its place. God not only forgave you of your sins, but He put His righteousness into your account. This is what He did for us at the cross of Calvary. Why did He do that? Comes back down to His love for us. True love. 
Hebrews 12, Hebrews 12 gives us an insight into what kept Jesus going as he faced the horrors of the cross. It says there, Seeing that we also are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does easily, easily beset us, looking to Jesus, the author and finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We might ask, what was the joy that was set before him? Jesus told the story of a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one went astray and he went until he found out and he brought it back rejoicing. There's rejoicing over one sinner that comes to repentance. See, you were the joy. I was the joy that was set before him. You were the reason, I was the reason that he went to the cross of Calvary. So we could have open access to our God, our Father, 24-7. So no matter what you're going through today, this moment, His ears are open to your cry. So as we come to the communion table this afternoon, we have an awful lot to be thankful for. Communion is a reminder to us that no matter how long we've known the Lord, or how much we've matured spiritually, or how many good works we've done since our conversion, it still comes back down to the cross. It still comes back down to Calvary. See, the Lord said concerning communion, I want to establish something that will bring you back time after time to the cross so you don't forget what it's all about. That's why we celebrate communion. Not anything you've done, it's what Jesus Christ has done for you. It's about the cross. And the only reason we have access to His presence right now is because the blood of His Son, God's Son, was shed for us. He suffered a sinner's death in our place. Just, just we need to remember that. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't forget it. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 25 He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. You know, you really can't remember a person you never knew, right? Hey, do you remember me? I never knew you to begin with. I've had people come up to me before. Hey, you remember me? I have no clue. I don't, have, I, have we met before? You see, you can't remember Jesus if you've never known him. And that brings us to the next statement that Paul said. He went on to say in verse 26 through 29 in 1 Corinthians 11, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. See, we're not to do this in an unworthy manner, Paul is saying. Communion is a family celebration. It's celebrating what Jesus did for us on the, on the cross. So only Christians should celebrate it. So this, this afternoon, if you're not sure where your life is with Christ, I would encourage you to make sure your life is right with Christ. And that you become a part of the family of God. That you ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin, commit your life to Him, become a part of the family of God, a child of God, as we sang this morning, and receive communion with us. Maybe some of us, you know, need to make a recommitment to the Lord. 
before we receive communion. That's something we can do in our hearts even right now as well. Realizing what Jesus did for us upon the cross, we could recommit our life to Him afresh this morning, this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love that was so abundant when we looked to the cross. Lord, I think any one of us here would have given it all up at the first strike at our face or the first whip on our back. We would have said enough. But you endured it all. Every aspect from beginning to end, you endured for us, for our salvation, for the joy that was set before you. Lord, how can we not respond but just with complete surrender to you? Surrender of our lives, our wants, our wills, our desires, just giving them over to you, Lord, saying, Lord, you take control of my life. We thank you for our salvation. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here that has not asked you for the forgiveness of their sin, they have not recognized what you've done for them upon the cross, that they would do so right now, Lord, as we uh, get ready to enter into communion, that they would turn from their sin and turn towards you and say, Lord, forgive me my sin. Cleanse me of my sin. Thank you for dying for me and rising again from the dead. I commit my life to you now. Lord, as we say that prayer, if we mean it from our hearts, Lord, we know that you'll come in and you'll forgive us our sin and you'll make us new and whole. Lord, maybe there's some of us here that need to recommit our lives to you this afternoon. To say, Lord, I, looking at what you've done for me, I want to recommit my life to you. Resurrender. There's areas in my life that I've, that I've taken back. And I'm, I'm living in this area that I don't want to be living in, Lord. And I want to resurrender that to you this afternoon. We pray the same thing, Lord. We give our lives to you afresh. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Thank you for dying for us and rising again from the dead. Thank you for this time of communion that we can celebrate together as a family. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.